Hi, and welcome to Answers News for September the 8th, 2021. I'm Georgia Purdom here with Brian Osborne hey, and Roger Patterson. Hello. And we have a wonderful studio audience with us today. So make yourselves known. Let's hear you again. Come on. <laughs> All right, so we are going to start off with a couple of things we have coming up, um, one at the Ark Encounter and one involving Roger here on the end. So the first one is raising, raising Godly Generations to Face the Secular Giants, and this is our annual Pastors and Leaders Conference. It's going to be going on October 5th through the 7th at the Ark Encounter, and um, it, we have a great lineup of speakers, and the conference um, you know, it's not just for pastors and leaders, it's really for anyone who wants to learn, you know, how to raise that next generation to love God and serve Him. And we have a very special event going on during the conference. The very first night of the conference, we will have the red carpet premiere of Courageous Legacy. So probably a lot of you remember that movie. It came out 10 years ago now. It's hard to believe it's wow. been that long. Um, but they have updated the movie and um, made it even better, so to speak, and added a brand new ending, all right? So kind of seeing these, these same characters 10 years later and what's going on in their lives. Um, the, the cast of the uh, movie will be there that night. And so if you are signed up and registered to go to the conference, you get to come to the red carpet premiere as well. So. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah. I will be there. So <laughs> I'm excited. I, I love that movie. I got to actually mm -hmm. meet... Oh, see, I always forget if it's Alex or Steven. I got to meet one of the Kendrick brothers <laughs> <laughs> the other week, and it was pretty exciting. So, yeah, they are great. They do a great job with their movies, and so join us. You can go to godlygenerations.org for more information on that or answersforpastors.org. All right, so I'm going to let Roger talk about this next little part we have here. So last uh, summer, and I guess it was the spring as COVID was upon us and lockdowns happened and all of those things were in full gear, we started a new science show, and ultimately it wound up being called Unlocking Science, and the initial goal was to do something for families so that they had some activities to do while kids couldn't be in school and, and those types of things. And it was fun. We shot it on a little cell phone, and it was it was a, a real blast to get to try and engage people, and it was interactive and live, and, and it worked for a while. And then we started thinking, what if we did this on the larger scale, if we could produce this? And so last winter, uh, while the crowds were down and had a little bit more time, we actually wrote and produced a whole series of shows and rather than just using the cell phone camera and, and broadcasting them live, <laughs> these are produced shows now. And the third season of Unlocking Science has just been released on Answers TV, our streaming platform. And the first half of season three is up. You can go access that now. And we've got a little clip here to give you a teaser of what season three looks like.
You and they, they're a lot of fun. You got they a really fancy are. logo and everything. Look at that. Yeah, all that. That's exciting. And yeah. inside the videos, there are little animations that pop up mm -hmm. and sound effects and all kinds of cool things that just um, made it uh, come to a whole other level and just very excited for all these things. And I say this is for kids of all ages. Yeah. So anybody here in the room, anybody out there watching, I think you'll enjoy these things. So tomorrow afternoon, that'll be Thursday, September 9th at 2 o'clock Eastern time, we're going to premiere the first episode. So everybody will be able to watch that episode for free. And that'll be on my uh, Mr. P Facebook page. You can see the information there on the screen. So if you go to my Facebook page, I'll be there live with you watching. Uh, you can ask questions, add comments there. I'll be there to interact with you. So we've got the premiere of season three of Unlocking Science tomorrow. And then you can get all the rest of the great episodes uh, there on Answers TV. And the second half of season three will be coming out soon. And the video team's working on season four to yeah. be released. And now i got to start working on season five and six to record that <laughs> over the winter. Not to hurry up. with the TV show. Yeah. Well, yeah. Laura on here on YouTube says, this looks like so much fun. And I can attest, as a father of two kids, it really is really well done. Roger does a great job. It's a lot mm -hmm. of fun. Blowing stuff up to the glory of God, right? Yeah, not always. Exactly. Blowing stuff up. That should be the tag. Every episode. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I tell you honestly, to watch a good science program mm -hmm. taught well from a biblical worldview is so much fun, and it is so powerful. So I encourage you guys to check that yeah. out. And I'll tell you, there is a Bill Nye Easter egg in one episode <laughs> in each season. So we'll see who can oh, figure I'll that out. Oh, I have to remember that. I always enjoy when Roger says, hey, can you come on the show and help me do an episode on something dealing with like genetics or bio molecular biology, which is my area. It's just so much fun to be able to do that and bring that um, to kids and adults alike. So, all right. So our first article is always a little bit of a fun one. We like to, because, you know, so much news is so serious, and we're going to talk about a lot of serious things, but you got to have a little fun, too. All right, a weatherman was trying to do the forecast when his dog just waltzed on and crashed the segment. All right, so I'll go ahead and start playing Yes, this. as we go through the day tomorrow, yes, Storm is in the building, getting some <laughs> treats, walking on thin air, 20 four degrees uh, by late tomorrow evening when those thunderstorms are possible. But for much of the day, it's dry, 26 during the afternoon. And uh, east. Okay, so we don't have to hear all the commentary. But the guy, what I appreciate, he doesn't, yeah. like, miss a beat he with this. He doesn't. He just keeps on going. Uh, and and if, it must have been bring your dog to work day because he's in the studio and his dog is there with him. And you can still see it like the dog doesn't leave. It keeps walking around right through the whole three or four minutes. Hanging shindig. out like he's supposed the to dog be there. Is there. <laughs> it really is. Uh, the article kind of cracked me up, though. The writer says this, the craziest part, because of media union rules, the dog probably made at least $23,000 for that one segment. I, <laughs> so I thought it was kind I of funny. I doubt it. I've seen some of those <laughs> so, contracts. For, yeah, for kind of fun. I thought maybe it was going to be a weather segment from home, and, you know, yeah. things can happen when you're at home doing Zoom things and all of those. And, yeah. But, nope, this was actually in the studio. So, anyways. Hey, can we do a whole show just on these sort of news articles <laughs> one time? Be, that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> it would be really funny, so... Okay, uh, next. Booksellers Organization Apologizes for Promoting Book on Trans Damage to Children. So this has to do with the American Booksellers Association, and what they do every month, um, apparently, is they send out something that they call, it's called a white box. Don't ask me why. Okay. Um, but it's called a white box, and they send it out with books that um, they think librarians and people might be interested in either selling or putting in their library. 
Well, they got in trouble when they sent um, Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, okay? Because how dare they mm -hmm. send a book, right, that speaks against the, trans, the, trans, the idea of transgender and, and children, right. you know, changing their gender. Well, and actually what the book does identifies a lot of the problems and dangers of hormone therapy and then what's happening to kids having surgery that are very young, the effects that are lifelong, how you really can't reverse those effects, and really just making people aware. And not opinion-based, but right, just based fact based, real science-based, fact right? Based. She's following the science. And so that's what the book's all about. And of course, because it goes against the popular cultural narrative that transgenderism is an ultimate good, well, then transgender activists are raising all sorts of cane because they promoted this book and they want to take it down. And they want to make sure that the American Booksellers Association repents of their awful sin of repudiating their ideology and makes concessions to get in line with their worldview. But you'd think a group like this, the American Booksellers <clears throat> Association, they would want all these ideas disseminated. They want people to buy all types of books, read all types of different points of view, and be able to think for themselves. To be but educated. instead, they've become the curators of thought, and they're the ones who are going to tell you what you should be reading and what perspectives you should be listening to. And so we have this, this uh, idea totally flipped on its head from what I think the initial idea of this group would have right. been. Yeah, because yeah, it, it says it says when we included this book, that this is the ABA saying this, we violated our commitment to equality and inclusion, and we caused harm. And I'm like, well, if you're committed to equality and inclusion, then the book should be allowed to be included, right? Just because it's an opinion, an idea that's not popular in today's culture, doesn't mean right. that you that you squash it. I mean, it does in our current culture because anything that doesn't agree with that people feel they have to squash or make reparations for. I mean, that's what Absolutely. they're trying to do, right? Pay money to different transgender associations because of the harm they cause them. Well, I love the wording the author gives in the article because really people hold to this transgender secular ideology with a, with a religious fervor. And it is a religious-based ideology. It really is. And so the, the author uses these words that the American... Booksellers Association, they've committed to a period of mourning and soul-searching, recognizing their sin against the transgender activists, and they're going to make concessions to atone for their sin. And then it says they made a donation, kind of an indulgence, to the Transgender Defense Education Fund. Additionally, the ABA is planning new diversity roles, forums for the LGBTQIA plus community, an annual session on queer history and activism for the staff, all because they promoted this one book that dares state the science against the popular secular idea. Yeah, and it even goes farther at the end of the article. They talk about uh, how the titles that are being sent out in these boxes are going to have a committee to review them and that the yeah. titles will be brought to the senior staff's attention that meet the uh, United Nations criteria for hate speech. So if there's any book that meets this hate speech criteria, they're going to uh, present it and then block it from being in this box. But that implies that this book that was sent out doesn't include hate speech. Now that is a very strong accusation against this uh, book, which was written at a very in a very fair way, just representing the facts of the matter, trying to present this very radical new idea that pumping our young children full of hormones and blocking them from entering the natural process of puberty, all of these things are good for their bodies and good for their um, emotional well-being. All of those things are untested ideas. We don't know the long-term right. effects and 
in the few cases where we do, we see very harmful effects from those things, both physiological and psychological and spiritual. Well, Georgia, you call this all the time what? This experiment on the kids. It's, it's the largest like medical or scientific experiment done on children that is basically going along with the government's approval of it and even the parents' approval at many levels. And I just think it's so, so sad because I really do think, given about five, maybe 10 years at the most, we're gonna see some pretty horrific things come out of this. Um, and these children saying, what were you thinking, <laughs> right? Why did you let me mutilate my body? Why did you let me do this? Um, and I was a kid, what did I know, you know, right? And so I think, I think we're really gonna see that eventually, but it's sad what has to happen to get That's to right. that point. Right? And it's already so. happening actually right now over mm -hmm. in yeah, England and Europe, there are court mm -hmm. rulings coming down, there are right. people are coming forth and saying, hey, why did you let this right. happen to me? Why did you condone this? I've been yeah. damaged for the rest of my life, and they've actually won some court cases in regards to that. So it's yeah. happening there already, but I think you're exactly right. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, discovery of prehistoric mammals suggests rapid evolution of mammals after dinosaur extinction. Right. So the idea is that when the dinosaurs were roaming the Earth millions of years ago, there weren't a lot of mammals because they just couldn't really make it because the dinosaurs were sort of take, had taken over. But once the dinosaurs died off, mammals started to increase, and we got more of them. And so what this paper, what this article is suggesting that they actually evolved a lot faster than, than the evolutionists thought after the dinosaurs died out. Um, so this is another weekly installment of how we got it all wrong in the past and we need to rewrite evolutionary history. This changes everything. <laughs> so if you weekly think installment. Oh. The, the, the supposed idea that around 66 million years ago, possibly with this impact um, event, there was a decline in the dinosaur population that left the door open for these mammals to take uh, their place in the rise of the mammals, the age of the mammals began. And there have been some various ideas proposed about how and why that could have taken place. So here we have some more um, evidence being added to that that needs to be analyzed. Does this support that idea or does it contradict it? How do we look at this evidence in light of that? Now remember, evidence always has to be examined. It doesn't speak for itself. It doesn't come with a tag on it. We've got to evaluate it and think about it. So here we have a handful of um, creatures and no, only wait. their jaw bones. No, surely they found multiple teeth. skeletons, whole fossilized skeletons, no. thousands of them. No, they just, found. just some okay. jaw bones and, and some teeth. teeth. And okay. because those are generally well-preserved because that's a harder bone and the, the enamel on the teeth um, makes them uh, more available for preservation than other softer parts. So they've examined these teeth and what they've found that there were some larger creatures than they expected in this group of mammals uh, called um, condylarths. And they didn't expect them to be so large. They're a little bigger, think of the size of a marmot or a house cat. And they're bigger than they expected. They think they're supposed to be like rat-sized or mouse-sized because they weren't available uh, they weren't able to exploit those niches and get as large before. And all of this is based on that scant evidence. And it really blew me away as they were describing some of the differences that they were able to um, de define the different species here based on the morphology of the last molar and distinguished by a tiny cusp on its molar that distinguish yeah. one species from another. And I always get frustrated with that when it comes to the fossil record determining species, right? Because, I mean, I, I don't, 
I just struggle with that. It's one thing to say, you know, groups, different groups of animals, and, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of difference between an elephant and a dog, okay? I get that. But really you can, ta you can say they're different species when the only difference is a tiny little piece of one tooth. How does that constitute a different species, right? So, so I always struggle with that in the fossil record as to how they determine that. Well, and as uh, I mentioned in a talk earlier, that this fossil evidence, it exists in the present, as Roger mentioned, and then there's very little of it. So you have to interpret it through a set of lenses about the unseen past. You've got a worldview, some things you assume to be true about history before you engage the evidence. And, of course, these, they have an evolutionary worldview. They use it to interpret present-day observations to get their conclusions. So I don't really fault them for reaching their conclusions. It's based on their worldview. But their worldview ultimately is leading them astray. And what we're seeing here is variation within a created kind. Right? Mm -hmm. Not uh, evolution. Nope, variation. Right? And so that's what we're actually seeing. And it says here at the end of the article, based on what they found thus far, they predict they will find many more new species. And I predict they'll find the same kind of animal. Yeah, they'll be the same kinds. So yeah. they would have expected that this happened over hundreds of thousands of years and things happened very slowly. What they actually found, the discovery of the new species in the Great Divide Basin suggested rapid diversification following the extinction event of the dinosaurs. So they're once again having to change their story. Oh, this happened much more quickly than we thought. And as we examine these things from a biblical perspective, we're likely just looking at examples of creatures that were either buried in the flood or in those post-flood sediments and, and those small events that happened as, as little disasters after the flood. And we have the same types of creatures. They're the same kinds. There's just a little bit of variation within them. And we know even today, you know, like evolutionists will say, oh, speciation takes millions of years. No, it doesn't. It, and this is why this is so shocking to them, mm -hmm. because we observe that in the present. Um, I'm all the time seeing examples of rapid speciation, even in the finches, all right, on the Galapagos Islands, we've seen that. So it does happen rapidly. We can observe that in the present. So it doesn't really surprise us um, that they're seeing these different, if they truly are, um, different species, and that it would have happened quickly, because we know that can happen quickly. Because all the species we have today came from the came from the animals that were on the ark just several thousand years ago, right? So, I mean, it's not that hard to believe. And so worldview just plays a huge role in this. And really, your worldview plays a huge role in how you interpret not only science, but things like morality and gender and so forth. And you got to start with the right foundation. And it kind of reminds me of this note. Toby made a good point here in the chat on YouTube. You're talking about the last article, he says, isn't it, or maybe she, but isn't it ironic that they, those with a secular ideology, want to preserve nature when it comes to climate change, but they want to reject nature when it comes to gender? Right, yeah. Because it comes it down to worldview, and ultimately, the secular worldview is antagonistic towards the biblical worldview, which is man is made in God's image. And of course, the enemy wants to undermine that in any way he can. All right, plants evolved the ability to actively control water loss earlier than previously thought. Okay, yet another installment. Our second of installment. How we got it wrong and why we think this now. Okay, so basically. We do need a logo to pop up when yeah, this happens. We so do. this is yes. talking about um, stomata on plant leaves. And stomata are basically openings, okay, on a plant leaf. And they can open and close um, depending on certain environmental conditions, things like drought, humidity, and all that. So basically the idea was that they know that these are in what they consider in, in modern, okay, um, uh, flowering plants. Those have evolved, the, they're the most um, 
They're the youngest, okay? And so they said, well, we see them there, so where, where did they come in? When did they first evolve, right? When did they come on the scene? And so they actually now have found them in ferns as well, right? These very complex mechanisms that allow the holes basically to close or open, mm -hmm. they're finding them in ferns. And ferns are considered um, much older from an evolutionary perspective. So they're like, oh, well, the, the, the common ancestor of both ferns and flowering plants must have had this like millions of years ago. It yeah. couldn't be a common designer. No. No, definitely not. So from the evolutionary story, and, and I wrote here story time in my margin. Um, it says, plants first evolved stomata soon after they moved from water to land some 450 million years ago. So some type of algae became a plant-like structure that then moved from water into land. And now it has the problem, it's going to lose water from its leaf structures. So it's gotta be able to control that water loss and the stomata have to evolve. And so they're just assuming that this stomata were able to evolve, that it was able to overcome that challenge and trying to figure out how that happened. So if that branched off at some point and the flowering plants are very young up here on the branch and the ferns and other things are down here lower, there must be some common ancestor because what they're looking at here is not the direct evidence of the presence of these things, but how these are coded for in various genetic structures that these plants share. And so if I can find the genetic code in the ferns and I find the genetic code in the flowering plants, they must have had some common ancestor that shared that genetic code. So it must have evolved even before the ferns came about. But that's all assuming that their evolutionary story about these things is true in the first place. So we have to assume that evolution is true in order to prove this evolutionary relationship and process. And we wind up in a bit of a circular argument and uh, begging the question. Okay, we go back to the, we're looking at our conclusions to confirm our conclusions. And it's also worth noting that, not only that, but they make mention here towards the end of the article that being able to better understand how these mechanisms have changed during plant evolution gives us useful tools to learn more about how they work. This will be important for helping our crops to adapt to future environmental changes. And I put down here, wrong. <laughs> the evolutionary narrative adds nothing to your understanding how these plants function in the present. We study them in the present. We observe how they function in the present. We can use that knowledge to then manipulate crops to our benefit. But that's all done in the present. The evolutionary narrative does not help with that at all. Yeah. And it is very complex how these plants, I mean, there's a lot of signals, uh, a lot of things that are going on at a molecular level to decide if the, if the stomata should open or close. And so if you're saying this is in a older, quote unquote, plant type, then there's even less time for something very complex to have evolved. And what evolution needs to make it work is time. Right, and they're running out of it <laughs> um, because right. they're saying all this complexity was there in, in you know the very earliest plants, and so it it just becomes more and more problematic for them uh, as they find these types of things. All right, Joe Biden condemns Texas abortion ban, celebrates killing babies in abortion. Of so course, he does. This, yeah, he does, and so this has to do with the um, the heartbeat bill, what they call the heartbeat bill in Texas that um, basically does not allow um, children after the age of about six weeks, which is when the fetal heartbeat is detected, um, to be um, murdered through abortion. And uh, 
So Biden, of course, has flip-flopped on his views about a million times when it comes to abortion. Uh, it seems to be whatever will gain him the most as far as votes and things like that are Political concerned, or the, the most favored. A politician would not do that, Georgia. Uh, yeah, so anyways, we definitely see that with him. But uh, he talks about you know this ban. So basically what happened, too, is that the Supreme Court... Most of these heartbeat bills get stopped by a court, all right? But this one did not because the Supreme Court decided to basically allow it to go into law. And so Biden had said that it violates a constitutional right that was basically um, established under Roe v. Wade. There is no constitutional right to abortion. It is and not in the Constitution or is it implied by the Constitution. And a court can't create Ugh. a right. That is not the job of a court. That's so right. he doesn't even understand our basic political system that he's there um, sworn to uphold. So the court can't create these rights. The rights, as we understand them, are things that we can derive that are given to us by God as our creator. And I am quite certain that God would not give us the right to kill our children. That's that's something he directly condemns in Scripture yeah. all throughout. And he, talk, and he talks, too, about the fact that, you know, well, this has been, you know, Roe v. Wade was established 50 years ago. We've done this for 50 years. That's the precedent. So we need to keep doing it. Well, just because it's it's older doesn't make it right, right? Just because we've done it for 50 years and killed 60 million babies in the U.S. doesn't make it a right thing to do. If you word it for what it actually is, then its absurdity becomes apparent. Hey, we've murdered babies for 50 years. That's, that gives us the right to keep on murdering babies. Right. Because that's what abortion actually is. We don't say it to be harsh or to be bold. That's just what it is biblically understood and logically and scientifically understood. And so when you put it in its real terms, then you can kind of see how ridiculous this is. And as you mentioned, Roger, you don't even understand how the system really works. And based on his logic, what about the previous Supreme Court rulings before Roe v. Wade that endorsed things like segregation? Mm -hmm. Is that now the president? Is that now the law of the land? There should be segregation for the rest of time because the Supreme Court made a bad ruling years ago? No, if they make a bad ruling, then let's fix the bad ruling to make it a good one and a right one. And so that's, that would be the hope ultimately of this. And this ruling seems, what's happened here in Texas is a good thing, right? Yeah. And people will argue about the merits of it to one degree or another, but it's a good thing. It's saving lives at least for a period of time. Yeah, so the, one of the main reasons that the Supreme Court, it seems they chose not to take this up on the initial appeal concerns that were brought from various um, pro-choice groups and the ACLU is that it doesn't have a government enforcement mechanism rather it's a civil enforcement mechanism so any citizen of texas can um, bring a charge against another who they think has been involved in or aided and abetted a uh, an abortion so this is something that is brought up in the civil courts rather than in a criminal sense uh, from the government and so that seems to be the key difference here in this bill now the uh, the other bills have been struck down pretty much on the face, and we're looking at other bills in Mississippi and other states that are uh, coming to the court very soon to understand how they're going to rule on those. Uh, there are some concerns, as Brian mentioned, with this bill, just like with any of the other so-called heartbeat bills. It relies on the abortionist to find the heartbeat, and they have a monetary incentive not to. They're going to get paid if they can't find the heartbeat. Uh, it really doesn't address the issue of 
the pills, abortifacient pills that can be used, all of those types of things. It talks about dismembering a fetus inside of the womb and those types of things. Now, we can, we can be thankful for all of the lives that will be saved, but we have to remember that ultimately a lot of these things wind up regulating murder. And we can rejoice for those things that, that will come, the good things that will come out of this. And let's do that. But let's continue to remember that all of these things need to be resolved not by laws and not by bills and not by any, any of our human efforts, but through the hope of the gospel. It is the gospel that is the hope for restoring all of these broken things in the world. These things are here because of sin, and it's knowing that Christ has come and died for sin, that we can be restored, uh, even those who have been involved in abortion, those who have uh, participated in those things. There is restoration. There is hope in Christ who has died for our sins, and we can point people to that. We can say we don't need to be uh, pursuing all of these evil things because we can have hope in Christ. Amen. Yeah, and they did give $100 million to the Texas state lawmakers to Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program. So again, you know, there's lots of like crisis pregnancy centers and churches and other places that are trying to support mom and baby and really help, okay? It's not just about preserving that life in the womb. It's about that life, you know, again, that woman being able to give birth to that baby and then supporting her and the baby after the baby is born. So it's good to see that there's a lot of those programs. And if you want to learn more um, about abortion, um, the DVD Unplanned, which came out just a couple of years ago now. It's a very challenging um, video to watch, um, talking about the issue of abortion, but I think it's also very important. It's the um, real-life story of Abby Johnson, who directed a Planned Parenthood and then now is pro-life herself. And so I encourage you to, to, to watch that and to view that and think about those things. We also have our a really, really great um, pro-life exhibit here, our Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibit. We'll be opening phase two, the final phase of that next year. Uh, but it is a tremendous, tremendous, and we continue to hear um, just testimonies of people that have been so touched by that and so encouraged by looking at what does this baby look like in the womb, right? We've got such realistic models of that, and women are making decisions to keep their babies based on that. I just read a letter about that the other day. I mean, that's just, awesome. that's awesome, right? I mean, it that's is. encouraging, and so we need to continue to support things like that and help help those women. We do. And by the way, Roger, you got an amen in the chat, just so you know. <laughs> I, I switched to preaching there for a minute. <laughs> All right, Harvard's new chief chaplain an atheist. And so this, uh, say, so Harvard started out <laughs> like 400 um, years ago, right? Right. Yeah. Originally to educate um, the ministry and basically people going into the ministry. And they actually had the motto, truth for Christ and the church. Well, it's not that way anymore, obviously, mm -hmm. at Harvard and many of those other Ivy League schools. And so this chaplain, hey, you have to understand that Harvard has 40 university chaplains Ooh. that are chaplains of all kinds of religions, like Buddhism, Hinduism, I mean, all, all this, right? And so this guy has been there a while. He's their humanist or atheist chaplain, and he was basically now promoted to be president of all the chaplains. So that, that kind of ho hopefully, it's not like it's something new. They just got an atheist chaplain. It's rather he's now the head of all the other chaplains. Yeah, so there's an interfaith society that works around Harvard. Now, these are not people who are hired by Harvard. They work 
with other ministries. So for example, InterVarsity, a Christian ministry, sends a chaplain to work at Harvard. And uh, I read an article by one of their chaplains from InterVarsity who works there at Harvard, trying to explain the process because people have been a little upset by this. As you can imagine, Christians are concerned for this. And how do you, how do you call somebody who's an atheist a chaplain and, and all of those types of ideas? We can be rightly concerned, and we see the, the slide of these things and the degradation of the culture. Um, but sometimes we get a little too nostalgic for the past. Uh, Harvard has been gone for a long time, even back in the 60s and the 50s, the good old days, as, as many of you might think. So when we think about how all of these pieces are fitting together, it's important to be honest about what's happening. And this, uh, this group of chaplains from all these different faiths appointed him as the president to run all these meetings. Now, it's a little bit concerning to me, uh, even reading this gentleman's explanation of these things, of how he thinks it's wise to put uh, an atheist in charge of this group of chaplains, even because it just gives this level of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Here, you're an atheist in charge of the chaplains at Harvard. That's right. it, just, it just puts this stamp of approval, even though uh, you may not agree with all of his views and all those things, you're authenticating the work that he's doing and saying the work he's doing there is valuable. And that, that creates a big question mark in my mind as I, as I tried to read through and think about what who I want to trust as a brother in Christ is saying about his experience here. Well, something else this really kind of highlights as well, and something we say often as a ministry, is that really humanism, materialism, atheism is a religion. And by definition, it's a set of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. That's what religion is by definition. And this is literally just confirming it. You've got a chaplain for the humanist. They understand they have a religious perspective. They've got a worldview. They've got assumptions about reality, about God. If you think about it, everybody practices theology. We all do. We all have views on God, whether he exists or doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, what does he require of us? How do we rightly respond to him? If he doesn't exist, well, how can I live on my own to please myself? But you have a view on God. That is actually some form of theology. And actually someone said here, one of the students or maybe another chaplain said that Greg's leadership, the humanistic chaplain who's now president, Greg's leadership isn't about theology but it is, it is, because it is a view on God. It's a view on how we should rightly respond to God. It's about cooperation between people of different faiths. And as you read, it's kind of a long article, but you read really Greg's passion here, the humanist chaplain. His passion is connecting people with people, supporting them, helping people find their answer in other people. You don't go to God for answers. You go to other people. That's where your answers are found, in building community. And he cares for people. Yeah. And, and I'm glad he, he cares for people. Book, Good without God. He did write yeah. that book, right? Several years ago. And so I'm glad he cares for people. My question that kept popping up in my mind is why? Why, in his worldview, does he care about people? We're just rearranged pawn scum. You care about them just to die one day with no real meaning, either really now or for eternity. And actually, what he's practicing out, he's practicing a biblical worldview in the sense of he realizes people have value. He doesn't really understand why, but we know in the biblical worldview why. Yeah, and one of the things that one of his students said who sat under his teaching, this chaplain's teaching, said that, you know, basically um, religion is just a value add. Like it's something that you add on to your, to your own thinking, your own truth, when things seem chaotic. You know, it's like, a, it's like a thing you can turn to to sort of help you. And I'm thinking, why? I mean, if there's no God and there's no basis for that, for a 
you know, a higher power that can assist you when times are chaotic, why would you turn to that? So I mean, you turn just, to a myth. Yeah, when it's just you're sort of pain. a feel-good type of thing, not reality. It's fan it, basically it's fantasy. So when your tooth hurts, you turn to the tooth fairy, and things will get better. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not going to work out in reality. So it's it's sad. It's not to me. This is totally expected. I mean, we see this more and more, but. This is why I think even more, and it talks about these children that are coming, right. teenagers that are coming from Christian homes, you know, into a Harvard environment and being turned from God. And um, what we need to do, especially as parents, as grandparents, as pastors and Christian leaders, is really help and train children to know the truth of God's word That's so right. they can stand on it in the midst, right, of a wicked and perverse generation like a university that has totally turned in what it's doing, um, trying to take them away from God. But we, they can stand firm, but we have to help them, and we have to build up that strong foundation. Amen. Well, we are out of time for today, so we'll see you back on Monday at 2 o'clock. See you guys.